This morning we're in the gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 10, beginning of verse 24. Jesus says, The disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetop. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of God for the people of God. This morning, we find Jesus and his disciples in a setting of hostility and persecution, or perhaps pending persecution. Since the beginning of chapter 10, we began to read in verse 24, but since the very beginning of chapter 10 in Matthew, Jesus is giving specific instructions to his 12 disciples to go out and proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near but he goes on to say it's not going to be easy it will not be an easy road you may face arrest and flogging you may face trials and betrayals this is not going to be easy work going forth to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come near now i proclaim the gospel and you proclaim the gospel i doubt many of us maybe none of us have ever been flogged or arrested, or tortured because we're followers of Jesus. We live in the United States. We have freedom of religion. That's not necessarily our circumstance. But in those latter verses, Jesus begins to sharpen this point about having faith and how having strong faith can bring problems into your family life. He begins to say that our family and social lives may be disrupted by our decision to follow the rules of his kingdom rather than the status quo or the rules of society. Now, part of this at the end, I think, is prophetic hyperbole or exaggeration. You can read throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures when people are getting fired up, particularly when they're speaking prophetically about what God will do or what God is doing in our midst. 
Sometimes they use hyperbole or exaggeration to paint the contrast in clearer terms. That's partly what's going on, I think, in, in this text when Jesus begins to talk about that he's come to bring peace, not a sword. I mean, that just doesn't sound like Jesus compared to what he says in most of the places. But there in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. That doesn't really make sense in our context, probably. But Dr. Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist of religion, has studied pagans, Jews, and Christians at the time of Jesus and the years following Jesus. And he points out that really there is a contrast. What he says is that if you take Rome, for example, where mostly they were pagans, the norm for marriage were child brides, girls 10, 11, 12 years old, and arranged marriages being married to older men, marriages being consummated at that young age. He also says that in those circles, it was easy for a man to divorce his wife on no grounds. But he said if you begin to look at the records of Christian communities, you find that women had more say in who they were going to marry. And he quotes some statistics that say about half of the women who were getting married in Christian circles in the early days after Jesus in those next decades were 18 or older and that they had more say in terms of who they would marry. And men in Christian circles did not have license to divorce the woman without grounds. He said it gave women much more stability in their marriages and much more security in their lives. He says further in Christian circles, as you can read through the New Testament, women were given leadership roles in the Christian community. He said that just wasn't true in pagan religion or even in Jewish religion. It was a rare thing to have any women in a leadership role. But from the very beginning, Jesus recognized women as important in this faith. In the early church, you read through Paul's letters, he often names women who are deacons or deaconesses who are leading in their churches and sends them greeting and speaks of their leadership. He says this really was a, a difference in circumstance. He concludes this. I put it in your outline. He says, women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. I think that helps us with this text. To understand that if a young woman was in a situation where she was being treated unfairly, even in Jewish or pagan setting, that the Christian community offered a very different alternative. And you can imagine that that could cause problems, serious problems, in terms of her choices of faith to become a follower of Christ and what that might mean for the family and what they have expected. So it's not just that. Jesus is trying to stir up trouble. But he's given these disciples and the early Christians some warning about what might happen if you begin to follow the rules of his kingdom, which value all people. 
But it's not just in those days that this has happened. I can remember early in my days as a youth minister, it was fairly common that a young person would bring another young person to a youth experience, usually something we were doing that was fun. We we're going someplace for a fellowship kind of experience, and they would bring friends, and they would have a good time. And the parents weren't necessarily Christians or involved in a church, but they would say, oh, that's good that my young person's being involved in that. But it was so interesting that often as that young person began to grow in their own faith and to be drawn deeper into Christianity, they would want to go on a volunteer and mission trip or a weekend retreat or, or to a camp. And it was going to cost the parents more money and it was going to create some obstacles in their scheduling to get them there or to get them back. And often at that point, the parents would balk. I mean, it was okay if it wasn't inconvenient for them, but if they weren't people of faith, they had a very difficult time understanding why this young person was feeling these kinds of commitments and wanting to take that kind of time and to spend that kind of money on these kinds of experiences. Oh, it can happen in our time where faith creates tension and problems and family. When our discipleship begins to change us, as it will do as we grow in our faithfulness, it can cause problems. And Jesus is pointing that out to his first disciples. But in their day, of course, they're also facing some physical threats. But whether it's physical threats or family or social lives that are going to be disrupted, this is a text of encouragement. He gives his followers some encouragement. Do you notice three times in in the few verses we read, he says, do not fear. At one point, he says, so have no fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And why is that? Why should we not be afraid? He tells us in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do you hear that? This is a different kind of love Jesus is talking about. He's saying this is a personalized kind of love, a very particular love that God has for you and for each one of us, that God is paying attention to your life. Do you believe that God knows that much about you, cares that much about you, pays that much attention to you jesus says yes god does now some say no way god's not paying attention to me jesus says oh yes god loves you so much that god's paying attention to your life and knows about you and cares about you and is working for your good and trying to draw you closer into him the good news is that you are of great value to your father you're of more value than the sparrows, he says, and God pays attention even to the sparrows. How much more valuable do you think you might be to God, your Father? As I was a district superintendent, traveled around the state, had opportunity to be in lots of different worship experiences. One night I was at a church where we were having Holy Communion, and I was sitting in the congregation waiting my turn when a man came past me holding his small son in his arms the boy was asleep his head resting on his shoulders his legs kind of dangling 
around his father's torso. Father waited his turn in line, came to the altar rail, knelt down, received communion, prayed for a while, stood back up, went back up the aisle and took his seat. I thought, what a beautiful picture of a child trusting a parent. The boy didn't care where the father was taking him. He knew he was going to be all right as long as within the loving arms of his father. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in our text today, that we can trust God that much, that God is wrapping his arms around us in the same kind of way. When we are rooted in that identity as a precious son or daughter of God, then we need not fear. That's what Jesus says in the text. If you understand that God loves you, you need not fear because God is at work. There was a book I used that a friend gave me. I used it for devotionals a couple of years. It was testimony written by a couple of women. They wrote it anonymously. They said they did not want fame or fortune from it. Well, they got together regularly and prayed. Every day they would get together and pray, and then they would listen for the risen Christ, they said, to speak to them, and then they would write down what they felt they were prompted to write down. And then they ordered these day by day, so you have a whole year of devotion. The one they wrote down on August 29th says, Just breathe my name. It is like the pressure of a child's hand that calls forth an answering pressure. It strengthens the child's confidence and banishes fear. Years ago, this came home to me. I was in a spiritual growth workshop. A pastor was leading it. He handed us out some papers that had the 23rd Psalm printed on them. But then there were all these blanks within the Psalm. He said, go through and write your name in those blanks. And so I did that. So mine read just 23rd Psalm. You put your name in it. It reads like this. The Lord is David's shepherd. He shall not want. He makes David lie down in green pastures. He leads David beside still waters. He restores David's soul. He leads David in right paths for his name's 